You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Glenn, good to have you here, man. Yeah, it's great. Great to be able to join you. Can you just give a two or three minute background story of you know yourself and your work? Sure. I Well, I got into programming a long time ago. I was in seventh grade when I got my first computer. It was an Atari 800 that came with a, a basic cartridge that I could push in and, and uh, write basic code and record it onto a cassette tape. Uh, started sloughing school so I could stay home and write D&D games. And, uh, you know, from there, you know, my, my love for coding grew, went on hold for a while. Uh, but then later in life, around age I, I come from an interesting story. I dropped out of high school when I was a freshman, wanted to go straight to work, didn't want to mess. I just felt like high school was a waste of time. I wanted to work full time. I wanted to be an adult. And at age 24, went to college, went into computer science, finished my degree in four years and went to work for Microsoft. Uh, spent a year there doing developer support. And you know that was right during the, the, the release of .NET. So um, got Got to understand the .NET framework from the C# Sharp side, the, the VB.NET side. I came from a C++ background. Uh, got to know all that very well, and then uh, was recruited by a company back here in Utah, where, I, where I'm from, to come back and build uh, .NET solution for them. So I've been back here for uh, almost 20 years now. Um, uh, spent. 12 years with that company, New Dawn Technologies, building case management software for courts and public defenders and prosecutors um, in over 300 agencies across the world. Um, and then uh, after that co company got purchased, I left to go work for another startup because that's where it really feels good. That's where the fun and the action really is. And joined a company called Centiva that's also here in, in, in Utah. And um, we, we do a lot of work for the federal government. Um, uh, so it's, uh, a little bit more red tape than I'm used to with, with state level government. Um, but we have gotten to work on some exciting projects. The most notable of which is, has been rebuilding all the systems that the nuclear regulatory commission uses to uh, inspect all of the nuclear reactors, both research and power in the United States. Um, you know, project management, scheduling all the inspectors, managing licenses for the people who operate the reactors that whole spectrum. So we've had a team of uh, about eight people uh, that, that worked on that project, which four companies before us came in and failed. Um, some of them quite large companies uh, came in and tried, tried to replace the system and failed. And 
And we came in, we told them 12 sprints, you'll go live on this date. And it happened on that exact date, which is kind of weird. That never happens, right? We, we almost felt like we should have moved the date just because you're supposed to, but we, <laughs> we, we pulled it off. And, and uh, that's what happens when you have a great UX team that, that can really identify uh, you know, they can listen to, to users tell you what their needs are, but they can watch them do their job and identify what they really need and make sure that we deliver the most important stuff first. And and uh, they were able to do a great job of that and, and uh, deliver exactly what the, the users needed to get their jobs done. So that's that's been kind of my history. I've, I've gone from being a software developer. I still have a, a love for code and I code with my daughters um, to being really a team builder. I build, I build software teams, um, I build software organizations. And you, you talked a little bit off Mike about that experience of, um, bringing agile to a, a federal government contract. I mean, all over the news now is federal government wants to try agile, you know, and all these things, but talk about what that's really like, you know, on the ground. Cause I, I think that's a great yeah, story. To a certain degree, it's lip service. Um, to, it, they're, they're catching up, you know, they're 30, 30 years behind the rest of the, the uh, software development world to, to some degree. And um, some of it is lip service. Um, you know, some of it is memorandums going out uh, agency wide to the, to the entire agency saying we do agile now and uh, nobody has a clue what that is. And, and they say, well, as long as we do a morning standup, we're doing agile. Uh, and, and others have, have, uh, have really embraced it. Our, our work with the nuclear regulatory commission has, has been uh Interesting, because as I was telling you, we, we went in for a kickoff meeting and they said, congratulations, this is our first Agile project. We just spent millions of dollars gathering requirements for two years, and now we want you to start building software. Don't talk to the end users. And we, we were just kind of blown away by that because that's not the way we work. Um, but very quickly, they they picked up on the value of de- delivering increments of working software to end users on a, on a frequent basis and getting their feedback and, and the excitement that that builds. And, and we went from a, from a environment where they said, don't talk to the end users. They burn out on requirements. They, they don't want to talk to you to very quickly. All the users wanted to talk to us because they saw working software getting delivered. So it, uh, it, it can happen. And, and it, you know, it takes, it takes support from stakeholders though. That, you know, you, you have to convince more than, than the end users. You've got to get support at a higher level. And as you got success there, my guess is that you got a lot of anecdotal, you know, sort of back backside feedback about why the other vendors failed, right? What did you what did you do differently there? I mean, it's it's easy to say agile and we stuck to the the guns on user feedback and MVPs and you know all the things that I mean everybody throws out those words as if what the, that's what they want. Even people that are the clients that are farther down the spectrum, right? They kind of at least know the vocabulary this time. Um, but I mean, there are material differences in the way that the teams behave and, right. and the way that things actually get done in 12 sprints. I mean, what, what was when the rubber hits the road there, what is it? Yeah. Well, th- there's a number of things at play there. Um, there, there's the way that companies do business, um, the, the way that companies do business at various sizes. Uh, we're a company of about 130 people right now. Uh, when I joined, Five years ago, our technology—you know—we were a company of forty people, and our technology uh, team was me and a part-time guy. And our technology team is now fifty. Um, but we we approach projects from from what we've seen very differently than other contractors in the federal space. 
Um, it's kind of sad to see how low the bar is in that space. We've come in behind other contractors that have that you know won a bid because they bid lower than us. And the owner of the company of our company, he said to me, "Don't worry, they'll hire us to come clean up after that company messes it up." And I'm, I'm not going to name the company, but it was a it was a larger company, and they staffed it really poorly and delivered a dumpster fire and just ran away with the with the dumpster on fire. And we, and we got hired to come in and and clean it up. And 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 we did it with you know more resources for a fraction of the price. Um, and our you know one of our core values that we just discussed two days ago that we put up on the board was we value doing the right thing over doing the most profitable thing. And if we stick to that value, we're going to succeed in the long run and we'll be known for that. And, and the way our company works is salesmen don't sell what we do. Um, that that's never been a model that's worked for us. It's been our work that sells what we do. So we do great work and then the word spreads. Um, and, and that's, that's been what we've seen, uh, as the, the primary failure of some of the other companies, um, one is just uh, understaffing and not really caring um, and being focused on profits. Um, so, so you know, delivering the minimal amount of people to deliver the minimal thing that could possibly be con- even considered a solution um, that's hardly viable and running away when it's done with the money. Uh, the other problem is, I, I think some of those vendors that failed before us uh, never got past the requirements phase. Uh, they, they they never even got to where they were delivering working software. They spent so much time focused on perfecting the requirements. So they were still stuck in the waterfall mentality. And I, I don't know if they were thinking they were starting to do agile at that point or not. I, I don't expect that they, they did, but um, I think at least two of them ran out of funding before they ever even delivered a prototype. So that's, that's the other problem is, is, you know, that the software world ha- has traditionally felt that you need to gather requirements for years before you start writing software. And about 30 years ago, people started to think a little differently and did some research and found, oh, standard engineering practices don't apply to agile or don't apply to software development. We need to use empirical evidence and inspect and adapt on frequent basis and, and deliver early, fail fast. Um, and th- those principles weren't at play in some, in some of those early attempts. So I, I think they just got bogged down and, and maybe they got four or $5 million into the project and said, we can't keep doing this. And all they had done so far is gathered requirements. It's painful to hear, particularly that all yeah. of us are paying for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're, lear- they're learning. They're you know, learning. And I've been in the government contracting um, world and you know that it, that it is hard for the small vendors to go up against the big guys and you do have to have that long-term viewpoint where you, you know you could do it better, uh, but you aren't going to win, you know, the initial bids until you, you know, can kind of get yourself that that reputation over the course of, of many years where you might right. you might be the sole source contractor for some kind of reason or, you know, how mm-hmm. do you, you know, get ahead of that? So you almost want to caution like the small shops that kind of think, you know, yeah, there's so much money in government contracting, look at this, millions of dollars, and we know we could do it better. You know what? They probably could. Um, but that that business development train there, you know, it takes a whole long time to get that momentum in a way that won't won't crush yeah. you. So you don't need to think about yeah. that productivity or, you know, profitability, right? I mean, the, the cash flow burdens uh, and the payment cycles of government are, are rough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a long process. It moves very slow. 
and um, relationships are are necessary. Really, I mean, there's it, it, at any level of government work that I've been involved with, a cold RFP is something that's not worth responding to. If there's not some form of relationship, um, you're just not going to get anybody's attention. They're, they're not going to look at it. They need to have heard from somebody that you're a contractor worth talking to. And um, also, you know, just in, in defense of the federal government, uh, they do have to work from a position of playing it very safe. Um, that's, that's one of the reasons why they move slowly and, and why it feels like they're behind the times on technology is because, they're, you know, they're not going to move to Windows 10 the, the month it releases. It's going to take them two or three years because they, they're going to make sure that it's hardened, that there's all the service releases have come out that need to get it stable. And that's the way that they approach everything. They, they play it very, very safe. Um, and, and, and ironically, uh, or maybe appropriately, they've, they've adopted um, or have begun to adopt safe agile as um, the form of agile that, that makes sense to them uh, because it's not this free flow agile party where everybody just does whatever they want and, and, and passes out and is, has a hangover in the morning, but instead that they, they have a, a, something that's, that's documented and you can print out a long, you know, 80 page, a document describing how that form of Agile works. And that gives them reassurance that even though they're doing Agile, there's still something. And for those who Agile. don't know, SAFE is what scaled Agile framework for enterprise. Is that right? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it gets a little yeah, structure around that. It's really trying to solve. It just gets a little structure around that uh, kind of fluffy version that we all like from Lean Startup. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it gets, it's, it's gets more focused on solving Agile from the uh, executive level, from the portfolio level, um, speaking to the people who don't get Agile but want to understand what's going on with all the projects in their organization. You talked, so let's switch gears a little bit. You talked about teaching your kids how to how to code at a, at a young age. You know, I I know most of yeah. us that are kind of into code, like I've, I've tooled around with a little the the apps and trying to get my six and nine year old to you know, care a little bit. They're, they're probably, you know, more into Minecraft right now, but um, you know, yeah. What have you done uh -huh. there? I mean, it's just like, this is going to be a critical skill and to get, to get kids interested in it, I think is something that kind of appeals to, to all of us in the craft. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think those of us who have kids want to get our kids into coding because it's something, you know, at least for me, I want, I, I've wanted to get my kids interested because it's a way that I could relate to them. That would be, um, I don't know, it helped them understand what I do and, and the way my mind works, but also it's just, it's, it's the, it's the one thing that has captivated my mind more than anything in my life. If I'm, I'm ADD, always struggled in school. Um, it, grade school was really difficult for me because I just could not listen during class. I would just tune out and watch movies in my brain. And, uh, Programming was the first thing other than coffee that just completely captured me in tunnel vision and, and captivated all my attention. And, and so I, I want to share that with my children. And I, I've tried early on in various forms and you make a lot of mistakes. You know, if, if, if you're if someone who, if you've ever tried to teach your kids how to ski, you know what a disaster that is. There's a, there's a rule. You don't teach your own kids how to ski because you end up yelling at them the whole time and they hate it and it's miserable and they never want to ski again. Um, and I, I, sometimes I think I'm not that great at teaching my kids uh, things that, that I, 
that I'm good, good at, but I just don't know how to explain that to a child. I know how to explain that to someone right out of college that I'm training that has a background, um, but it's different. And uh, ironically, we homeschool our kids and my wife is a master at this. She's done a beautiful job of, of, of schooling our children. But uh, I, my 11-year-old was the first one that really started to, to get interested and she was drawn in by the same thing as me. Um, I got talking with her about what if you had a computer program you could talk to? And that was the what that was what got what got me writing code when I was in seventh grade was what if I could write a program you could talk to, and so her and I st- you know started working on it and over over weeks we you know got to the level of Cleverbot where we could you know we figured out I think I know how Cleverbot's working it seems like it's recording some people's questions reducing those down to a basic uh, statement and then using the, the, that statement on other people and recording their answers and and then boiling that down to a basic statement. And now it can recognize those back and forth and try different answers and different questions that it knows have been related to each other, but still has no uh, context of where we are in a conversation. And that's the problem that we're working on next is how do we create like a conversation graph of, you know, we've been talking for 10 minutes and now, you know, the computer needs to respond with something meaningful to the context of what we've said in the last 10 minutes. Um, and that's something that's, you know, she's been fascinated with. And, and I've done most of the, you know, actually writing the code while she's helped to design the conceptual solutions. Now um, we're moving to where she wants to be at the keyboard. She wants to write the code and she's actually learning C sharp. Uh, I've also got a 15 year old daughter who's uh, she wants to start college this fall. Um, we, we told, she wanted to start last year. We, we told her you have to wait till you're 16 before you start college. So she's starting this fall. I've got another daughter that's in her second year of college. And my 15 year old uh, has decided recently she wants to be, uh, she wants to go into computer science. So thought, well, uh, let's start coding together first of all, and, and see if you like that, because while you're, you're interested in the, the fact that developers make it money, it'd be, uh, it's more important that you love it because if you don't love what you do, you know, money is not gonna, is not gonna fix that. Uh, but also I'm, tr- I'm getting her, getting her set up with an internship here where I work so that she can be embedded in a team that has co-ownership of delivering a working increment of software every two weeks and, and see what that dynamic is like because uh, <clears throat> she, she works at a job right now where she's already been promoted to a manager and has the keys and opens up in the morning. She's 15 years old. And uh, uh, I, she thinks that this will be a less social job. And, I, and I've told her, you know, there's this stereotype of developers. You lock them in a room and slide a pizza under the door. But that's not that's not the way it works today. Development teams are highly social and you, you, you sit in the same room together, you're co-located and you're, you're talking all day, sometimes maybe too much, but, but the value of, of having that much chatter and friendship is what produces really high performing teams over time. Um, but, you know, the more they, they forge relationships and understand each other, the faster they can translate thoughts from one mind to another with shortcuts because they know each other's personalities. So, I want to see how she feels in, in that environment. And if she does it for three weeks and quits because she hates it, that's a success, right? Because she, she figured that out before she regist- registered for school this fall and, and she, she can start looking into other options. And if she does it for three weeks and loves it, then great. She's already on the right track. And I mean, can you imagine having being a freshman in, in, in college and have already been working for a few months on a software team and she'll you know, have a nice head start at age 16. She already shipped code um, to the government. So I mean, there you go. 
yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, so you're, you know, yeah, well, tool set wise, so you've got them in like what VS code and you're actually uh, using the, the .NET uh, frameworks and are you using, I mean, it almost sounds like yeah. you're, you're thinking about using some of like the NLP functions and, and stuff like that. Oh, so, so we've been using um, everything we've been doing is the console app and .NET. Um, we're working in Visual Studio. Um, this code, I think, would be probably a little bit simpler interface for her and maybe a better place. But uh, but uh, we've, we've just uh, been using basic uh, .NET framework features, uh, voice to text. Um, you know, what, 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 actually, one of the hardest things um, above any... <laughs> Surprisingly, the hardest thing is I want it to look like um, the computer is typing back as it talks. <laughs> that was one of the hardest things to implement. Um, of, of all the problems we had to solve, having having the, the, the characters appear on the keyboard slowly as the computer talks, um, you know, like they did in the movie War Games. <laughs> if maybe maybe no, you're, I know I'm War Games. Old. Yeah, that's our, that's a classic. Okay. <laughs> but that's, you know, in my brain, I thought it's got to look like that. If, if the computer's talking to me, it, it's got to look like it's typing <laughs> as it's talking. And and that was one of the hardest things to figure out. And so you've got her really thinking in that architect seat and design is like, let me talk about specifications and the, the real way that, you know, as yeah. a user, I mm -hmm. want to experience this. I think that is probably vastly more valuable as a skill set to understand that that user empathy piece prior to even writing yeah. a, a single line of code. I mean, the rest of it, you're going to pick up real fast on the syntactical and, you know, object oriented and, and whatever that is, those things are very right. easy to pick up from a logical standpoint that the rest of it is, is not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things that really comes into play is, uh, and, and this, this goes back to our whole philosophy on how and why we homeschool our children. Um, I, I have, I have to be really careful about not uh, going too far. Um, if they're interested in something, I want to feed them what they're interested in. And the minute they start to lose interest, that's when you stop. And and that's something that my wife helped me to learn er, early on. But it really has taken, you know, you, you learn all your mistakes with your first two kids and your third kid, you get it right. And, <laughs> and uh, you also let them eat a lot of dirt. <laughs> yep, you do. You do. But um but uh, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes in, in trying to be, you know, trying to participate in homeschooling our kids because I get home from work at five o'clock. They're done. They're just as done as I am. Right. They're burned out. They're tired. They don't want to hear anymore. And I'm at the dinner tables, you know, trying to teach them a lesson. And my wife is looking at me going, Glenn, they're not even listening. Stop. And 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 I and I picked up on that quick enough um, and gave up a long time ago on, on, on trying to be the teacher at five o'clock at night. Um, but, but the, the, the idea that when kids are interested in something and they, they want you to feed them information, you feed it as long as they're consuming it. But the minute they, they lose interest, stop, because that's how you destroy their love of learning. And that's how I believe, you know, honestly, that's how I believe the school system burns kids out on learning. You know, we're all born with this, natural desire and urge to decode things. And it's really easy to destroy that. And there's a lot of research that's been done that backs that up. Um, you know, kids want to learn how to read. They want to learn how to decode. We never did any reader books, any flashcards with our kids. We just let them start reading when they started reading. And they, you know, most, I think all of them, they learned their first words from playing video games, you know, exit, 
start, you know, were some of their first words. Um, but then our, you know, our, our first kid didn't start reading till she was six or seven, but her first book was Twilight. You know, there, there, there were no reader books in between. Um, and, and the same thing with our, with our next kids. And, and we, we've, we've taken that approach of only feed them what they're asking for. Um, in the, in the, in the radical unschooling world, they call it, they call that strewing where you, where you provide strings and whatever string they pull on, you keep feeding more of that until they stop pulling. And then whatever string they pull on next, you feed that. And so my wife has just filled our home with all kinds of stuff. And, and that applies to trying to teach your kids how to code. I think I could have failed really fast, um, with my, with my, uh, with my 11 year old trying to teach her how to code. Had I not been very sensitive to that, um, as, as long as she's interested, let's keep going. But the minute she loses interest, let's, you know, oh, she wants to play Minecraft now. Let's, let's go do oh, that. Oh, that's so hard for us as sort it of is. passionate practitioners, and, you know, but we found our thing, right? And we, we love our thing, you know, and, and I, I try to remember, hey, if, if they, they want to write poetry, like that's kind of just their code, you know, and, right. and I got to like, just, oh, just back off. Don't help. Don't even try to be useful, you know, just, oh, that's good. You know, right. Encouragement. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and I, I'll say, as we wrap here, I'll, I'll say bring it, you know, when you bring it back around, like all of those principles are really what the organizational literature would all tell us make for engaged employees and really successful professional teams. It, it kind of yeah. comes back to, you know, is it all I needed to learn? I learned in in kindergarten. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting stuff. Glenn, thanks for the conversation today. Really inspiring. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.